By now your Bible should probably just flop right open to that part of the Scripture as we've been working our way through Matthew. We're going to look at verses 21 through the end of the chapter. And I'm going to read a part of this for us as we begin. Matthew chapter 15, starting at verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Let's pray. Father, would you again break the bread of your word for us? And would you open our eyes to see what you want us to see this morning? To encourage, to challenge, to feed our souls, and to warm our hearts, to draw us deeper into a relationship with you, and to understand how we are to apply these truths in our world. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the passage that we're going to look at this morning is the story of the Canaanite woman who was healed as well as we're going to look at the feeding of the 4,000 that takes place right after it. And this is an important passage in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, if it wasn't here, we might not be here. This is a turning point in Jesus' ministry where Jesus withdraws from Galilee and he moves into Gentile territory. In Matthew's Gospel, it helps us to understand how the good news of the Gospel and how God's plan of salvation includes all the nations. James Boyce points out that Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels, and yet he is also the most open to the Gentiles. In chapter 2, it's Matthew who records the Gentile Magi coming to worship Jesus at his birth. They recognized something significant about what was taking place in those days. In chapter 8, it is the Roman centurion who is commended for his faith and his servant is healed. In this passage, it's a Canaanite woman who is commended for her great faith and her daughter is healed. And in chapter 28, it is Matthew who records the Great Commission to go and to make disciples of all nations, all the Gentiles, all people groups. The gospel is for all nations, for all people, and that is good news for you and me. So let's take a look at what this passage has to say as we walk through it. Number one, Jesus has compassion for all people. Now when we come to this passage about the Canaanite woman, you might uh, look at that and think about what we just read and go, well, how does this fit together? It didn't seem like Jesus' response there, at least initially, was very compassionate toward this woman. 
What was going on here in this encounter? Well, Jesus has just taught his disciples that the Pharisees' understanding of what it is that makes a person clean or unclean is totally wrong. I mean, they were so concerned about externals, you know, they criticized the disciples because they didn't wash their hands before they ate. You know, why do they break the tradition of the elders? Why do they do these things? And Jesus made it very clear. It's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean. It's what comes out of a person, out of our heart that makes us unclean. But if there was one thing in the traditional understanding that could make you unclean, it was contact with Gentiles. Gentiles were pagans. They were dogs. They were called dogs by Jewish people. They worshipped false gods and they were to be avoided by good Jews. So what does Jesus do at this point in his ministry? He takes his disciples on a trip. And he takes them into Gentile territory. They go to Tyre, which is about 25 miles north of Israel along the Mediterranean coast. And then they will go from there another 25 miles farther north to Sidon. And they will be in these cities. And these are pagan cities with pagan temples and unclean food. Kind of interesting, isn't it? How long were they there? We don't know. You know, it may have been a few weeks or it may have been a few months that they were there in Jesus' ministry. We don't know with certainty how long they were there. And what's interesting to me is we get just one story out of this. The story of the Canaanite woman who is healed. You know, I think about that and I I think here were these disciples, for some of them, it might have been the first time that they had been out of the country. You know, they're walking around in some of these cities like Tyre and Sidon. They're looking at the sites, they're looking at the pagan temples, and they're maybe thinking to one another, what's a good Jewish boy doing in a place like this? I mean, why am I here? Have you ever had that kind of experience where you kind of wondered, you know, maybe what you were doing too? Brought to mind when uh, Gail and I were in college and involved with Campus Crusade. Uh, one year when we were there, we uh, the Campus Crusade movement on our campus went down to Daytona Beach for spring break. And I can remember we were there at Daytona Beach, and wouldn't you know out of all the weeks we're there when there's 150,000 motorcycles in town? Because it's that week when all the gangs around the country would come in. And so there were groups called the Pagans, Hells Angels, and others that were there. And here are these little, you know, uh, Christian university students walking around, sharing the gospel with guys, you know, that have got leather and chains and all, you know, just all the look. And we're kind of walking around going, you know, spiritually, I'd love to see what's going on right now. You know, we're walking around. I'm sure there are angels there and ministering. We saw people come to know Christ. But I was, you know, in a situation where I felt like, now what am I doing here? What am I doing here? The disciples maybe felt like that too. And when I think about, you know, just this one story, it's an example of where John said, you know, if we'd written down all the stories, there wouldn't be enough books to hold them all. But here's one snapshot to give you an idea of what it was like. A Canaanite woman came to Jesus and she cried out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
She wanted Jesus to heal her daughter. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Where did she learn that? I mean, where did she hear about Jesus? How did she have an understanding of Jesus as Lord or Son of David? I mean, that's, that's a messianic title, Son of David. And she is coming to Jesus in this way. And, and what does she do? She is asking for mercy. There was a work of God going on in this woman. Matthew makes, though, this special note that she is a Canaanite. She is a descendant of the ancient enemies of Israel. How did they know that? I mean, was there something distinctive about her dress? You know, did she have a certain tattoo? Did she have a certain piercing? Was she dressed a certain way? And she was coming to Jesus, and she's a woman, you know, and they're understanding, you're not supposed to talk to a woman. Uh, A man's not supposed to do that in a public setting with a woman he doesn't know. You're not supposed to talk to her, and she keeps coming. She is unnamed. Although later Christian tradition will tell us that her name was Justa, and her daughter was Bernice. And Jesus at first ignores her. He says nothing. And she keeps calling out so much so that the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, send her away. <laughs> this woman's getting annoying. You know, she's, she's bothering us. Can you just send her away? And Jesus answered and says to the woman that I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Those were the instructions that Jesus had from his father. And Jesus always did his father's will. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. That's my assignment at this time. And she comes and she kneels before him. And once again she asks for mercy. And Jesus says to her, Woman, it is not right to take the children's bread and to toss it to their dogs. Was that a a put down? Was that an insult to her? Jesus using this word dog, it sure sounds like that in the way that we hear it. But do you know how something is said makes all the difference in the world? And we don't know the tone, we don't know the body language. You know, they tell us in communication that your words are about 7% of communication and your tone and your body language is about 93% of communication. How did Jesus say this? Was he testing her? You know, what's interesting, too, is that Jesus changed the normal word that would be used for dog in this setting. He doesn't use the contemptuous word of a wild dog. He uses the word dog that would refer to a household pet. And basically what he is stating is a priority and order. Children get fed first. We would do that. We would do that in our homes. We wouldn't take food away from our children to feed our pets and have our children starve. And what's interesting is how this woman comes and her reply to Jesus is amazing. She doesn't argue with Jesus. She doesn't question the order. She just says, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She's just asking for a crumb. She's just asking for something. Have mercy on me. And heal my daughter. And Jesus commends her for her great faith. 
and her daughter is healed. Now what makes her faith great? What was it that made her faith great that Jesus would commend her? Well, I think first of all, it was her understanding of Jesus as Lord, as Son of David, as one who had the power to heal. And in coming to Jesus, she was turning away from pagan gods and pagan temples and the idolatry all around her. I mean, these cities, there, there were temples that people would go to for healing, They would go and they would make their request to their priests or their idols, their false gods, and they would ask Him to do something for them. She turned away from that and she came to Jesus. It was also her humility in bowing down and asking for mercy. She was asking for grace. She knew it was undeserved. She wasn't making any claim. She knew she was not an Israelite even. She came and she simply asked for mercy. And her persistence. I believe that Jesus was testing her by His silence at first and then by His answer. That He was sent to the Jew first. But she persisted. And she passed the test with flying colors. Now what does that teach us? One of the important things that I want to take away from this passage is how faith is found in unlikely places. Faith is found in unlikely places. Many of you have uh, met or heard Americo Saavedra when he's here and he's spoken with us. He's one of the missionaries that we have supported for many years now, going back to 1986. And I travel with him when I uh, am involved in pastoral training with Apoyo. And I think about Americo's story how he grew up as a young boy in the jungle of Peru. And as a teenager, he heard about Jesus and he was curious. And how as that young teenage boy, he would go into a Christian bookstore that was run by HCJB there in Pocalpa on the edge of the jungle. And he would go to the back of the store and he would take a book that looked interesting and he would sit down at the back and he would read. Couldn't afford to buy the books. He went there to just read them and be very careful on how he opened them and put them back on the shelf. And the owner of the bookstore said to his staff, It's okay. Let him read. Did that owner of the bookstore know that one day America would go to Moody Bible Institute? Or that one day he would take classes at Wheaton and Trinity and get his master's degree? Did he know that one day he would be one of the leading missionaries in terms of pastoral training in all of Latin America? Not at all. And what was his investment in that little boy? You know, all all he was doing was saying, let him read. His investment was a few books. A few books. And if a couple books got dog-eared along the way and couldn't be sold or something, that was okay. He didn't have a clue what God might do in that boy's life in the future. But God did. And his little investment was huge. You know, I think of Pastor Obispo, who we work with in the church in Guatemala, in Kiyakish, this little village. Pastor Obispo grew up in a poor village. It's steeped in a mixture of Catholicism and Mayan culture. 
a works righteousness is kind of what they had been taught. You have to do this to earn God's favor, to please Him. How did he come to understand the gospel so clearly? How in that culture did he come to understand that we are saved by grace? That it is God's mercy, that it is what Jesus Christ did for us when he died on the cross, and we are not saved by our works. God did it. He used a woman, Terry Luttrell, as a missionary who shared the gospel with her. He used other believers who came and played a part in his life. And his eyes were open. And he is passionate about sharing that gospel with the people in his village and surrounding villages in that whole valley. America was just there again this past week involved in the training that we as a church are sponsoring. We made a three-year commitment, $30,000 investment, to help train pastors in that whole area in Guatemala in their understanding of the gospel and to raise up leaders who will multiply and go out and plant other churches. And God's using that. But again, faith is found in unlikely places. And we never know how God may use those small gifts on our part to change a life. John Newton, the converted slave trader, once said, I've never despaired that God could save any man since God saved me. John Newton's statement's a lot like the Apostle Paul when Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And John Newton said, if God could save me, he could save any man. But I think there's also a warning in this passage as well. And the warning is this. Don't let the privileges you have been given harden your heart to the gospel. Don't let the privileges you have been given harden your heart to the gospel. The Pharisees had every opportunity to believe in Jesus and they missed it. They had the Scripture. They had the promises of God. They had the Old Testament in their hands. They could have studied that and looked at those prophecies about the Messiah and looked at Jesus' life. And instead they rejected Him. But the Canaanite woman, who had nothing to her advantage, came to Jesus and she was saved. How does that work? I think there's a warning there. There is a warning for our children, our youth, our young adults. Don't take for granted the privileges you have had growing up in a Christian home, Christian family, going to a church that teaches the Scriptures. Don't harden your heart and walk away from all of that. Sometimes it happens. I mean, we hear these statistics of young adults who have grown up in the church, you know, talking about all churches, going across the board, you know, growing up, and then walking away from their faith in large numbers in those college years. And sometimes people will come back and they'll, they'll want to blame, well, their parents, you know, or their parents weren't perfect. Well, you know what? No parent is. And they want to blame sometimes the church and they'll say that, you know, well, if the church maybe had done this or that better or differently or had prepared us, then, then things would have been different. But you know what? The prodigal son didn't walk away because he had an unloving father. He walked away because of what was in his own heart. 
And what Jesus was saying in that previous passage really applies to this here too. That it's not our external circumstances that ultimately make the difference in our faith. It's what's in our heart. And the place that we've got to look at, you know, is what's going on on the inside in terms of my commitment to Jesus, my understanding of who He is, and my walk with God. Guard your heart and hold on to Jesus. And don't let the privileges you have been given harden your heart or take them for granted. Secondly, Jesus has power to do great things with our meager resources. Let me read for you this miracle again of the feeding of the 4,000. It says, Jesus left there, meaning Tyre and Sidon, and now he went along the Sea of Galilee. And then he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. And great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seen, and they praised the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. And his disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. And he told the crowd to sit down on the ground and then he took the seven loaves and the fish and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got in the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. You know, there are those who are skeptical of the scriptures that want to think that maybe these two miraculous feedings were the same one and the disciples just got it wrong in telling the story. But no, there are some details here that are significantly different in the two, not just the number of people there, but the location, the audience, who was there, uh, and some other details that I'll point out as we go along. Jesus had been in Tyre and Sidon. Now he goes down to the Sea of Galilee. And from Mark's Gospel, we realize that he is in the Decapolis. He is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. He is still in Gentile territory. This area known as the Decapolis was named for ten Greek-speaking cities that were just east of Israel. And another miraculous feeding takes place, but this time the crowd is largely Gentile. The previous one had been a Jewish audience. This is a largely Gentile audience. And they came to Jesus. And as Matthew tells us, they brought their lame, their blind, their crippled, their mute, and many others, and they brought them to Jesus and He healed them. I mean, that to me is just stunning. Can you imagine if you were there and you're witnessing all of this? And Jesus speaks a word, or He lays His hand on them, or He touches them, and they are healed. The people were amazed and they praised the God of Israel. And when they praised the God of Israel, it's really a recognition again, this is not our pagan gods or idols that are doing this. This is the God of Israel. This is a specific God. 
that they are recognizing as work here. And Jesus, once again, has compassion on them. They have now been together for three days with nothing to eat. And he wants to feed them, and so he puts the test again to the disciples. And for a second time, Jesus takes their meager, limited resources, their seven loaves this time and a few small fish, and he blesses them and he breaks them. He gives them to the disciples as they are multiplied. And the disciples in turn take them to the people. And Jesus feeds the multitude. And when they gather up the pieces this time, there are seven basketfuls of bread left over. If you remember in the previous feeding the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over. One for each of the disciples and symbolically one for each of the tribes of Israel. And if twelve had significance in representing Israel, then what does the seven stand for? It has been suggested that the seven may stand for the seven Gentile nations that once were in this promised land. It may also be a symbol of completion, a perfection, that there is food for all. And Jesus is the one who breaks the bread and who provides food for the hungry, Jew and Gentile alike. It's also interesting in the details here that even the word for the baskets that were used is different. The word that's used in the feeding of the 5,000 is kofinos. It is the kind of basket that a Jewish person would use to carry kosher food. But here in this Gentile region, the word is spiridos, and it is a woven basket made of reeds or rushes that Gentiles used for carrying their fish and bread, their lunch. And so there are these little details there that I think are rich with meaning that say that these were two different miracles, and one is for Jew, one's for Gentile, and that day... 4,000 men were fed, plus women and children, so maybe 10,000 people were there, and all who saw and heard Jesus and witnessed this miracle. Isn't it great to know that God can take our limited resources and use them to do great things? You know, when I uh, read this passage and I realized, you know, this was going to fall on Hope Sunday, I thought, how cool is that? God, that's really neat. Because God can take our limited resources and use them to touch the lives of others in a way far beyond what we would imagine. I mean, when it comes to child sponsorship, we just don't know what God may do in that life of that child. I mean, some of these children that have been sponsored through World Vision, for example, have grown up to become pastors and leaders in their villages. They have gone on to make significant uh, changes in the lives of others. God may use them to raise up leadership for the next generation. We just don't know. When I think about missionary support, many of you are involved in supporting missionaries beyond our church. And you have friends that God has called out and have gone into missions. I think back of again how when Gail and I were on staff with Campus Crusade in the 70s, we started to support a missionary in India. We had heard that a missionary in India with Campus Crusade could be supported for $160 a month total, you know, whereas in the States it's much more. So we said, well, Lord, what do you want us to do? And we, we gave $10 a month to help support this missionary in India. 
said, you know, just just send us a name. We didn't know him at the time. We got a name. We began to pray for George and Annie and his and his family. What we didn't know at the time is that George and Annie Nina would go on to be the national director for all of India and then later for all of Asia. And then he would uh, become one of the five leaders for Campus Crusade for Christ when they divide up and look at the whole world and what God is doing. I mean, that was awesome. We had no idea. Here's a, a little investment that you make in the life of a person and you pray and you say, God, would you use this and multiply I think about that in terms of giving to the church. You know, when we give to the church, it touches many different people. Children, youth, and adults. You are part of bringing kids to Christ. To faith in Christ through the ministry of our church. You are touching youth. And sometimes even with our youth, faith is found in unlikely places. That's powerful. Well, thirdly, and I'm going to be briefer on this point. But the third point that I wanted to bring in is how Jesus is planning a future wedding feast that will be out of this world. And you know that. But both of these miraculous feedings, the feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, have messianic significance because they look forward to this future day when Jesus is once again the host, where He breaks the bread, and where we celebrate with Him what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Matthew 8, when Jesus healed the Roman centurion's servant, he said this, I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, things are going to be changed and it's those who sometimes were thought on the outside who had great faith that will now be at that feast. And there were those like those Jews who rejected Jesus who will be on the outside where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. When that day comes, this great marriage supper of the Lamb, there will be people at this wedding banquet from every nation, tribe, people, and language. You can read about it in Revelation 19. And on that day, the people will shout, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. And let us rejoice and be glad and give Him the glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Oh, what a celebration that will be. Do you have your invitation? Have you given your life to Christ and placed your faith in Him as your Savior and Lord? And are you looking forward to that day? I think one of the things that's going to be so cool about that is going to meet these people that our lives have touched in some way that we may not have known directly. But God used those gifts that you gave to touch the hearts and lives of people in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, in Europe, all around the world. And all the glory will go to God and to the Lamb. Jesus has compassion for all people. Jesus has power to take our limited resources and use them to do great things. And Jesus is planning a future celebration that will last for all of eternity. So let's join with God in asking Him and what we should do. What's our response to this? Let's pray.
Father, as we come before you today, would you once again take our limited resources and break the bread and multiply it? Would you use us today to sponsor children through World Vision as we consider that? Would you use us to maybe use our time and our gifts to run a race that would help raise support for clean water and wells and projects like that? Would you use us, Lord, to invest in the ministry of the church that it might be multiplied many times over? and youth and children and adults and missionaries around the world. We ask it for your glory. Amen.